This is Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master, creating products customers love. Get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hello, this is Chad, and hello, Product Masters. Today, we're talking about how market segmentation is done, and particularly how it impacts pricing. And we'll talk about a few other topics related to that. To help us with the details of this, a product strategy and pricing expert is joining us. He is Dan Belikowski, and Dan's the founder of Product Tranquility, based in Austin, Texas. It's a consulting firm that helps organizations in a number of ways, but particularly around pricing and market strategy, what we're talking about. He has 15 years of experience and managing multiple products throughout different life cycles, from startups to publicly traded multinational companies. So a lot of good experience. And as always, we take detailed show notes for you. So if you want to go find a written version of this and also a one-page action guide to help you put into action the key concepts we discuss, you'll find all that information at productmasterynow.com slash 350. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chad. Thank you for having me. Glad we can get together to talk. The topic of market segmentation, I think, is very important to us. And it's sometimes something that we might overlook a bit. So I, hopefully, product managers are more aware of this, but uh, I think companies are might be a little bit less aware of it. But first, I wanted to, to ask you about the topic of strategy, because I, I view strategy as driving pretty much everything that we do in product work, particularly product strategy, and uh, very much the market side of that. But I noticed in your profile, among the various roles that you have, you also help with Northwestern University's Kellogg's executive training program, the course program, on product strategy. And Kellogg is a really good school. They don't let anyone just come and talk about product strategy. So I figured you must have a pretty good perspective on this. Can you describe product strategy for us? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, product strategy is, is not a set of goals and it's not a roadmap. Uh, product strategy is the art and science of understanding customer problems and aligning your organization around creating desirable outcomes for customers and for your business. So if we break down product strategy, take it in its two parts. So first product, I actually think that Problem management is actually more important for product managers than product management. So the idea is you want to become obsessed about your customer's problems and slightly less so about the product that you currently have in market. And so the idea there is what problems are you really trying to solve and for whom? The strategy component, strategy has many definitions. There's a good book out there I recommend to any product managers listening, a good strategy, bad strategy, and that gentleman dives into very good detail on examples of good and bad strategy, but ultimately strategy defines a current situation, an assessment of that situation and a path forward to overcome the challenges you face and how to win. So putting it all together, product strategy is about orienting the company towards the problems that we will solve and how solving those problems for customers will positively impact the business. Okay. So I very much like the customer focus on that. You know, we share the product strategy aspect, the problem management, right? And I've heard others, uh, Steve Johnson has been on the podcast recently <laughs> talking about product managers are actually problem managers, right? And we should be understanding the customer problem. And in that assessment of the current situation and kind of the path forward, the, the strategy in my mind often boils down to what you just shared at the end there, which is how to win, right? How do we win in this situation? Absolutely. 
So thanks for providing the kind of background there about product strategy. And that, as I said, I, I view strategy influencing everything we do in product work. So that must influence market segmentation. And I'm curious if you can help connect that together with us, right? And help us lead into this topic of market segmentation. I actually think about it in reverse order. Okay. I think that market segmentation influences your product strategy. So the way I think about customer segmentation and the customer research process is you're really assessing what is as much as we could be sure about anything outside of uh, the at borders of our skin in the world, but really trying to understand what are problems our customers are facing and how much do they value solutions to those problems. Let me take a military example, for example. So mm-hmm. imagine you're a general trying to guide your troops and you've got a landscape with different hills that your troops could take. The idea is that you want to understand what are the possible advantages, disadvantages, constraints of taking any individual hill. And so I really think about that same approach when thinking about market segmentation. It's really helping the general understand what is the landscape and what is the opportunity, challenges, and advantages of taking any particular position in the market. And so product strategy then is the process of deciding where you can compete and win once you've Hmm. outline that market landscape. Okay. I like that. I personally have used with several groups, Ash Mariah's tool, the Lean Canvas. And I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Lean Canvas or not, but it is. I this am group. familiar with Lean Canvas. Okay, great. This great one-page view, right, of nine elements to help us think through, is there kind of a business case here for the product or not and getting everything aligned? And then what you were just saying about taking the hill, one, one example came to mind that we were thinking about a new uh, product, and I, I actually don't remember what the product was at, at this time. But what I do remember was the best that we could come up with for being able to reach customers was through farmer markets. You know, going to the farmer market on a, on Saturday and introducing this product to them. That that seemed to be kind of the ideal customer group and how we could introduce it. And also seemed to be a really expensive approach for the price point of this product that what just wasn't something that we could scale. And that kind of helped us identify, you know, that fit between the product idea and the market segment and who might go after this. Which hill to take, right? Absolutely. That led us to think about different hills then, <laughs> that this was not going to work well in the long term. I like that example. Do, do you have a, a company example that you've helped in terms of how you went about thinking about the market segmentation, where you started or how you discovered what really fit? Well, one example I really like, and again, I think everyone can relate to this one versus you know some small company I've helped that no one's heard of is Tesla. So Tesla, Elon Musk back in 2006 wrote an article called his secret master plan. And you can go look it up if you want, but ultimately right. Tesla's mission was to accelerate and is to this day to accelerate the move away from fossil fuels to a solar electric economy. But you might remember the first car that they came out with was the Tesla roadster Mm -hmm. at a pristine price point of $250,000. So you might, so you got a lot of flack for how is this going to help accelerate the world off of fossil fuels Eventually, he created the Model S, a slightly more reasonable $80,000 price point, and then now the Model 3 at a $35,000 price point. So I think this is a perfect example of understanding customer segments and aligning product strategy to sequentially attack those different market segments. So one of the things that Elon understood, and I haven't had a personal conversation with him, but you can get it from his writing, the electric vehicle the electric motor has a distinct advantage over the combustion engine vehicles, which is it can immediately 
deliver power directly to the wheels. So the Roadster could easily, every time, beat a Porsche or Ferrari head-to-head. The question is, who cares about that? (laughs) And who's willing to pay for it? And so he looked at this market segment of very high-end people who care about their 0 to 60 speed being world-class, best in the world. Now, these same customer segments didn't care as much about things like having an established long-range national or international charging network, which at the time they came out with the Roadster was not in place. So he was able to balance the segment that he went after, the value drivers of that particular segment. And then as they got better at it, also the company capabilities he had at the time, you probably heard or your listeners may have about production problems as the Tesla cars have gotten more and more mass market. Well, the Roadster doesn't have those volume problems, I'm sure, at least not compared to like the Model 3. And so he was able to look at the benefits the product was providing, align the customer who was willing to pay for those particular benefits, didn't care about other things they couldn't provide, what we might term the whole offer, and then the capabilities of the company to execute his strategy in a methodical way. Okay. So really matching up the value created by that product that was envisioned, right? The benefits it created to who cares about this product, right? Who's going to be the ideal customer for this? Absolutely. So that's good. And also very smart of him to create a sustainable uh, revenue stream that would let him ultimately deliver on his objective of bringing sustainable energy to the world. So which is still in progress, but we're, we're seeing it happen more and more. Absolutely. Let's dive in a little bit deeper into how we actually do this market and customer segmentation, right? We Maybe we're sitting around the table, we're in a startup, or we're in a larger organization, we're thinking about a new product that we haven't, we don't have experience with uh, the customers that much yet. We've just, maybe we've heard a few things from customers or market analysis, uh, secondary analysis looks at uh, some research and says, here's an opportunity, and we're trying to get our hands around uh, who should we even be talking to about this product to gain some more insights, right? So where, where do we start with market segmentation? It's a great question. So one lesson I've learned the hard way is start at the top leadership of your company. The reason is you need to make sure that your executives understand that segments and segmentation is actually a thing. Many leaders think that their product that they're building is for everyone and they're going to go capture the entire market. And if that's the mindset in the building, it doesn't matter how fancy your segmentation scheme that you've gone and spent all this time and money creating is. So the first place to start for product leaders is making sure that the company is open to thinking about customer segments. Mm -hmm. The second thing I would recommend is folks start early. So Customer segmentation done properly helps every part of the organization. It helps product development. It helps pricing, marketing, sales, customer success. It makes the job of everyone easier. And what's an unsuccessful pattern that I've seen is when people build the product without a segment in mind and then hand that off to marketing and say, hey, marketing, now position this for a particular group, that's a segment or that's a strategy that is very unlikely to succeed and will cause a lot of heartburn. Yeah. And a comment on that, 
As a engineer, uh, my background, it also strikes me that that's a product that may be created by engineers and not necessarily by people with a strong connection to customers. And it, it's just one of my pet peeves. I, I dislike seeing that the disconnect there between if we uncover a customer problem, well, let's make sure we carry our understanding, hopefully our firsthand understanding with the customers of that problem all the way through to launch so that if marketing is helping us with that launch, that they know what the customer problem actually was, what customers are talking about. Well, and if you think about the day-to-day job of a product manager, organizing the, the backlog, trading off what we're going to build of one feature versus another, it understanding who you're building for makes that decision so much easier mm-hmm. because there's always going to be way more options of things to build than you, than you can actually have the engineering capacity to build. And so it just makes that prioritization process much easier. Yeah. It's an excellent point. So the core part of segmentation, really what you're, you're wrestling with this underlying truth, which is your customer needs are heterogeneous. So with segmentation, what you're trying to do is create groups that are homogenous within a segment or as homogenous as you can, but heterogeneous or have differential behavior between groups while also balancing the ability of the company to manage all those diverse interests. So there's often a challenge that you run into of, well, how many segments should I create or how many segments should we go after? Because every, if you imagine if I created an individual segment for every single customer, that becomes completely imagine uh, as intractable it as, the, <laughs> as the segment of one is a problem. So, so they, they both have trade-offs. Yep. And so the way you wor- I work through this process with clients, there's two things that really dictate the quality of the segmentation that you end up with, of the, of the segments that you derive, it's in equal parts that the data that you use and the methods by which you get there. So I'll get to the data in a, in a second. They'll become clear as I kind of talk through the methods. So there's really two approaches that I work th- with clients on in sequence. And they have fancy Latin names, a priori and post hoc. Really, we can use English term and just say before and after. So the a priori exercise is what I'll work with clients on first, because one, it allows us to have a very easy conversation that socializes this concept of segmentation and leverages expertise that's already in the building without confusing everybody with a bunch of other concepts that they don't need to worry about yet. So an a priori segmentation uses existing research or segmentation schemes. So for example, I might use customer geography, company size, industry vertical. And this has on its face some value because you might imagine if we think about industry vertical, that customers in that particular vertical, if I'm thinking about insurance versus manufacturing versus retail, well, I imagine insurance customers are more alike in the problems that they're facing day to day and the kind of solutions that they need than those that are in retail or manufacturing. The other advantage of an a priori segmentation is it tends to be much faster and cheaper because you're using usually publicly available data or easily uh, accessible data. It does have some drawbacks and that's the fact that customer benefits that really drive the why of customers buy 
is not really part of an a priori segmentation and existing segmentation schemes may not fit the exact business context or business purpose that you want to use the segments for. And so those can be drawbacks, but it, I use it again to socialize this concept of segmentation also to surface assumptions and areas of disagreement or risk. So, you know, if we imagine that, you know, we break out three prototypical segments, let's call it small business, you know, medium enterprise, you know, and then enterprise customers as an example. And then you have different variables for each of those in terms of maybe their buying process, their technology adoption attitudes, the, the size of the company, the revenue. As we start filling in the blanks in that matrix that we've created and, and have a dialogue among the internal team members, whether that's the executive or the frontline representatives, sales, customer success, product managers, we're going to come to realization of we don't know exactly everything we thought we did when we started this exercise about our customers. And there may be areas of disagreement, which is a positive at this stage because it defines areas of further research and investigation. And also areas of risk of just, hey, we actually really need to validate this and we don't have confidence in the item that we put here. So after that process is done, then we'll go through the post hoc segmentation. So here we're really trying to dig into what are the core underlying customer value drivers. And again, the the, the pros and cons here mirror the opposites of what I went through in a priori segmentation. But it really starts with the customer's view of the world, what drives them to make purchasing and usage decisions. The approach is better for a particular business outcome because it's contextualized to how the segments are going to be used. The trade-offs are it's going to cost more, take more time. And often to do the post-hoc analysis, you need some sophisticated statistical tools that maybe are not the skill set inside the company. So the idea there is that, you know, I'm going to use things like customers' jobs to be done, uncovering those through external market research, customer interviews, uh, you know, do a quantitative assessment based upon that research, usually some sort of offline survey, and then some statistical analysis on top of that to arrive at profiles, often bubbling up into, you know, what we would term as personas in the product management world that are differentiable and truly, you know, different ways that those customers look at value. Good. And describing that, taking the jobs be done approach, and as we were bantering before we started recording, I appreciate that you have enjoyed some of the jobs be done interviews we've had on the podcast as well. That that suggests that the the value driving perspective of this and the personas come from a, from a you know what's the problem that needs to be satisfied sort of approach. Right. Less maybe on the demographics of a segmentation and more on trying to find a common problem between customers. Is that fair to say? That's correct. And you know, there's many schools of thought in the jobs to be done world. I'm particularly fond of Tony Olwick's approach mm-hmm. of outcome focus, and yep. especially in the world as it applies to doing segmentation for pricing. Because as you think about these customer outcomes, those are directly translatable to value, which is the core of what we're trying to get at in a pricing exercise. Okay. And that ties into segmentation exercise as well, too, because Tony has shared before, you know, when they're looking at doing a jobs to be done analysis and who might be benefiting from this product, they often will find a subsegment 
in there that actually has different needs and can be thought about differently. And because of those different needs, and if we could address them, we might be able to provide that group much higher value and pricing would be thought about differently as well. So I'm not sure if we're going to get into that area or not, but uh, I definitely want to tie in how we go about pricing here and just take us back to the methods. So we have the a prior, what we do before, which might be based off of existing research and kind of looking at segmentation in a standard way, geography, company size, and like, and then the post hoc afterwards doing our own analysis, maybe using jobs to be done, customer journey type tools to have a, a firsthand appreciation for what their problem is and the value. And then you said, we're going to get back to data. So what's the data used for this? Is it that jobs to be done data? So I just wrote a very extensive blog post about this, but hmm. the the data is often a challenge for product managers because when you go into a segmentation exercise, you are literally overwhelmed with options that you can choose from. And we've already talked about several of them here. So the way I categorize them is general versus product specific and observable versus unobservable where you know, general is these are characteristics that don't change by product. So for example, the company size is fixed, but for example, the, the buyer or the target end user will be product specific. And then you may have again, observable versus unobservable. So observable, obviously company size, number of employees, a geography, those type of things. There's unobservable might be the types of data we'd get from jobs to be done interviews, where I'm learning more about the situations, the context, the motivations, relevant competitive alternatives. And I use that very specifically from a jobs to be done context, where when most product managers or most you know marketing folks think about competition, Maybe you know your startup. You're thinking about the five other startups that are doing the same thing, but then you go talk to your customer, and they've never heard of any of you. What they're doing is they're paying Johnny the intern to update a spreadsheet every week. So Johnny the intern is actually your relevant competitive alternative, and you're not going to find that out until you go talk to those customers. Right. So, so the the idea is that with the difference between a priori segmentation and a post hoc segmentation, those tend to use more of the observable externally observable characteristics. And the post hoc is when you really go in, try to extract the, the situations, the outcomes, the motivations, the obstacles that those customers are facing and you doing a deeper analysis around those. Okay, very good. We have to have the data and we have to know who our competition is. And I tend to be a fan of when we are starting with segmentation, especially for a product that is new to us, we have less familiarity with, they might be new to the world perhaps, of niching down as much as we reasonably can. Right. So like, for example, you talked about in a prior, we might look, if it's a B2B product, we might look at industry vertical and maybe we say we're going after insurance companies. And perhaps our, our CEO views insurance companies and as some homogeneous, holistic pool, right? But I'm quite sure when I start talking to insurance companies, the one-person agents, the 12-person the small business, the 20,000 employee insurance company – all will have very different perspectives about what they do. And even if the needs are similar, they're going to have very different perspectives about actually how they need to be approached, I think, and what marketing messages they would pay attention to. Fair? Yeah, absolutely. And so what you're really talking about is, can we isolate the factors that are causal to the purchasing behavior? The reason why, and the jobs to be done, the big hire and the little hire. 
there may be, you know, it may be because they're an insurance company versus a manufacturing company, but is there something going on inside that particular organization, whether it's insurance company A to insurance company B that is different, that makes one a better buyer than the other because of a particular situation inside that building? And I think you also hinted at another challenge. The reason you need this more advanced statistical analysis is because of this multivariate problem you've we've just outlined, right? So you've got insurance company, I matrix that with size of company, I matrix that with geography, I matrix that with whatever, you know, the the how they manage their IT environment, whatever it might be. And so now you have a very large statistical problem as you bring back data from the market trying to differentiate what really makes one group different than another. So this is where the statistical analysis part comes in. Yeah. And you're getting incredible insights when you're actually having those customer interviews. I, I had the very valuable experience of being part of sales once to and, and B2B. And I never expected to be doing sales at all as an engineer, but that was a great experience. And it was interesting to me how often we would run into the question from a prospect, and this was large financial companies, well, have you sold it to XYZ, someone that they view as their either pair or really competitor, right? Mm -hmm. And to break into that space, we could have break into it before we had kind of the reference account that that group saw meaningful to them. Right. If it was some company that they never heard of uh, or wasn't part of their, their peer group, it didn't really matter to them. And so figuring those things out would be really useful. Absolutely. Yeah. The, as you get farther and farther down the, the rabbit hole, the number of, of variables and things you need to think about worrying about becomes quite, quite intense. And so that's one of my uh, hopes from some of the, the blog posts I've been laying out is, is helping product managers sort through a lot of those decisions of what they need to look at and, and why. Excellent. Good. Let me tie this into pricing for us. Before I do that, I want to talk about our sponsor real quick, which is the RPM Experience, Rapid Product Mastery Experience. Details are at productmasterynow.com slash RPM. But, but this is a program that I take teams through, usually teams of product managers, sometimes directors, sometimes product teams. And in nine weeks, we really improve the basic understanding of everyone about how product management works. It's a very holistic approach, what all the tools, practices, and processes are. And we spend our time applying that knowledge to what they're actually doing, to what the team is doing. And it was interesting uh, when we were talking before about the, uh, you know, we need to start with understanding who our customer is, and that helps out all the other functions that are involved. I just had a call with a previous customer today about their outcome, where they are right now. And I heard the same thing that I heard when we did this for Motorola, which was, you know, Chad, many of the people in in the RPM experience that, that you took us through are engineers. And it used to be our conversations would be in specs when we get together and we talk about what are we working on. It was always engineering specs. Now our conversations always start with the customer and what does the customer need? And that's a key switch that I've seen many times over, having a better customer focus. Also really helps those people increase their collaboration and all be kind of rowing the same direction, moving in the same direction together. So if that sounds interesting, nine weeks to a higher performing product team or a group of product managers, check it out at productmasterynow.com slash RPM. So Dan, let's tie this back into price. So let's let's say we've done the work with the tools data. We have an understanding about segments. How does this impact pricing? Absolutely. So at its core, price really defines how a buyer and a seller divide value in a transaction. So all pricing conversations ultimately come down to an understanding or a conversation around value. 
However, like the Tesla example, perceived and realized value differs between segments. And also different segments will have different relevant competitive alternatives. Competitive alternatives are important because you the only value you can price is differentiation value. The market will set the rest of the value because at the end of the day, the customer has the option to go with whatever other alternative and you only get to price how different you are than those relevant alternatives for the for the customer. But pricing is also more than just price level. It also includes packaging. And the packaging aspect is incredibly important. Good packaging reduces sales friction. It decreases sales cycles. It makes it easier for customers to self-select into the option that's best for them, understand your product. And your packaging needs to be aligned with segments as well. And just to be clear on this point, because we have people that are in software listening, that are in building products, that are in food all across the plane. Can you describe packaging for us? Because it has different connotations. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, so it's not the, the box on, in the CPG uh, world. It's packaging, by way of example, is when you go to most standard SaaS tools these days, you have a good, better, best offering. So the idea of packaging is... How do we take this pile of features that we've built and put them together in a way that resonate with our audience, that doesn't just make them choose from a Chinese menu of a thousand items a la carte? Because when you do that, you, (laughs) my other product manager friend has a phrase, overwhelm customers with value and then they leave. So the idea is you want to give them a set of choices, but not too many, and definitely not one. So packaging is the art of taking all of your features and presenting it to customers in a way that's palatable and that moves all of your deals forward as fast as they can because customers are able to grasp it. Sales representatives who are helping customers based upon a couple of qualifying questions are able to recommend a set of features to them in a, a preordained way. So understanding your segments first really assists the packaging exercise. Okay. So does that packaging, so I think of this as a menu of options that um, we have figured out makes sense to categories of buyers in some sense. That could be looked at as a sales technique, right? We're we're trying to give more tools to our our professional sales team to go be enticing to a group of customers. It could also be a way of of maybe appealing to a larger segment that we know has some subsets in there. And so we're trying to define these packages to appeal to those subset segments. I just wonder how you think about that packaging as what it's doing together as we go approach a, a customer, right? Because on one hand, I'm thinking, well, if we really understand the customer's needs, I'm going to offer them the package that is for them, you know, why do I need to give them a menu of options? Well, exactly. So the question is, how do you manage this at scale? So we want to make the company's go-to-market motion as efficient as possible. Yep. And so that's reducing drag on marketing, having to explain every single feature in the product for a customer to understand its value. That's the same on the sales aspect. That's also for the customers. So you're trying to maximize the speed at which everyone can grasp this thing provides value. It's the thing that's meant for me. And it talks to a particular customer type. So I think a great example of a company I think does this very well is LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, the base 
social network for, for business, but then they have LinkedIn premium business. They've got LinkedIn recruiter. They've got job seeker. So they've identified the different personas, the different segments, LinkedIn sales navigator as well, that will use particular sets of features. And so when I go to LinkedIn, I don't have to look at LinkedIn sales navigator or LinkedIn recruiter because I immediately know, oh, those, I'm not a salesperson and I'm not a recruiter. So those are not for me. So what are the choices that are left? It makes my buying decision much easier when I'm signing up for a premium LinkedIn account. Yep. Yeah. And there's value communicated in that. I was a, you know, no cost LinkedIn user. Now I'm a LinkedIn sales professional user navigator, whatever that's called now at like $800 a year, only because there's one feature that I wanted in that, that combination of features they provided. Right. But that offered me enough value to say, okay, I'm in, I'll pay my money so I can get that feature. Yeah. That's often a challenge in the packaging process. And it's a challenge that I you know, run into with my clients all the time where you, you have to make hard decisions in the packaging choice. And sometimes you, you end up in a situation like this where you have you know, one feature in the package just above. You hope for the vast majority of your customers that's not the case because really, again, in this pricing process where you're distributing value between buyer and seller – if there's only one feature that I'm paying $800 a year for, uh, it better be worth all $800 because I don't <laughs> care about the rest of it. Right. So it, it really throws that, that value ratio out of, out of whack. So you, you know, again, understanding these, this customer segmentation from the ground up, you know, helps you to make sort of those trade-offs. So you minimize the situations like that. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Thanks for taking us through this kind of journey from strategy to segmentation to pricing and how some things fit there. In the show notes, I'll make sure that we have a link to your uh, blog article about this for more details as well. As, and we'll talk about some other resources in just a moment. But as listeners know, we love innovation quotes around here. What quote did you bring us and what does that mean to you? Yeah, Chad. So I really like the quote. I think it fits well with our conversation. It's by Ted Levitt, the loved marketing guru at Harvard Business School. If you're not thinking segments, you're not thinking. And too often, leaders think their product is for everyone. This is almost never true. And as I mentioned before, this leads to a bunch of downstream problems for the rest of the business. It makes a bunch of things harder, deciding which features to build, pricing, messaging, so the more focused you are on a particular type of customer, the easier it is to clearly define why you are the best choice for that customer. Yeah, and the easier it is for them to find you as well. Most of us tend to find experts when we need help, not the generalist. And so you have to position yourself as the expert to your segment. And if you're all things for everyone, you're a generalist and, and people aren't going to be very interested in working with you. So I like that quote. He, he's well known for his quarter inch drill, right? Quote that people can go look up. But I, I love um, that one as well. But if you're not thinking segments, you're not thinking. Love that quote. Okay. How can people find out more about the work that you do and the resources you have available? Absolutely. Well, uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn at Dan Balkowski, pretty easy to find. And then I post regularly on my blog at producttranquility.com. That's product tranquility, all one word. Okay. So LinkedIn profile and producttranquility.com. Very good. Well, once again, Dan, thanks for joining us. And Product Masters, you're listening, you find the written show notes of everything we discussed, as well as that one-page action guide to take action on our key topics at productmasterynow.com slash 350. Dan, thanks. 
Thank you so much, Chad. I had a blast. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.